All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. The COP28 Climate Summit begins its second week of events, and there is a lot to talk about. The United Arab Emirates Sultan Al-Jabbar has stirred up a hornet's nest by questioning the climate cult. Climate czar John Kerry admits to becoming, quote-unquote, more militant, and Al Gore is becoming increasingly unhinged. Is this climate narrative becoming unglued, or are we... Seeing an even more authoritarian push for climate action, we're going to be talking about all this and more on episode 426 of the In the Tank podcast. right welcome to the in the tank podcast as always i'm your host donald kendall and joining me today we've got a full crew we've got jim lakely vp of the heartland institute how are you doing today good sir i'm doing fine uh, i understand there was a presidential debate last night on uh news nation is that the name of the network i think i should get bonus points just for remembering or trying to remember what the name of the network is that almost nobody is aware of so good for them as a pr move um my highlight out of that, I saw just, of course, I didn't watch it, but I saw some clips on uh, Twitter slash X. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, again, said that the climate agenda is a hoax. So points to him. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, I was combing through Twitter looking for clips and whatever. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's PR team must have been on top of stuff because I swear every clip I saw on Twitter uh, was from him. Also joining us, we got Chris Talgo. He is the editorial director here at the Heartland Institute. Chris, surely you watched the debate in total. No, I didn't because I don't have News Nation. News Nation is not available on my uh, cable TV package. But like Jim, I did see uh, some of the highlights this morning, and it seemed like it was actually pretty raunchy. Uh, looks like uh, Nikki Haley and Vivek were having some good back and forth. Ron was attacking Nikki. And uh, Chris Christie just put his, you know, best foot forward, although that definitely was not, you know, good enough. So, I, I mean, I guess, you know, here we are now, uh, you know, a month out from the uh, big Iowa caucus and uh, looks like it's going to be Trump by landslide. So these debates are pretty much meaningless. And also joining us, we have fan favorite, as Jim refers to her in our Slack discussions when we're deciding on whether or not to invite her, Linnea Lucan, research fellow at the Arthur B. Robinson Center for Environment and Climate and yada, 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 yada. Linnea, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. And I heard uh, from very reliable sources, um, which would be uh, MSNBC, that Chris Christie ate everyone's lunch on the stage yesterday. <laughs> so, Dang um, it. <laughs> uh, cut to the clip from Billy Madison where they're wondering where all the kids' lunches are. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> Uh, before we get going, I know Andy's laughing in the background. Before we get going, for those audio-only listeners that are probably catching the show on a Friday or later, you could join the show. Well, first off, leave a review for us on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. But you could also join the show a day earlier. 
Thursdays at noon central time where we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Rumble. And you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. You could also support the show by uh, hitting that super chat functionality that we have enabled where you can guarantee that your comment or question is read on the air or just hitting the like button, sharing this content, subscribing if you haven't already, or just leaving a comment under the video all helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. But yeah, debate, I don't know, whatever. I've stopped caring after debate one, but uh, I did see uh, a headline yesterday suggesting that the Iowa caucus was only 40 days away and that kind of blew my mind so if that is in fact true that means uh today we are standing 39 days away from the the iowa caucus and and to me and i don't know about you but to me it was like you know whenever we talk about these debates or whenever we talk about the polls or something like that it always seems so distant like we're talking about some like distant thing that's coming over the horizon whatever but then when I saw that number, 40 days yesterday, I was like, oh, my gosh, it is real. Like, it's coming soon. And not only is it coming soon, but with the holidays quickly approaching, like, we're going to you're, you're going to wake up after Christmas and realize that the uh, that the the Iowa caucus is like two weeks away. Like, that's that's how soon it is. So, Jim, is all of this becoming a little bit more real for you uh, now that, uh, you know, you see those. You see that small number of days away from the first primary contest, and you better unmute your mic, sir, before you answer. <laughs> oh, you almost busted me again. I'm looking, I'm, I'm trying to do some last minute show prep, man. You're asking me about the stupid stuff like the Iowa caucuses. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you had to remind me that it's 40 days away. That, that seems pretty close. And uh, again, one of the clips I saw from the uh, debate last night was the opening question by Megan Kelly, which I think took about 40 minutes to get through it was a very long question but the basically the question uh was to uh, ron DeSantis: hey why are you still running if you're so far behind in the polls um you're 30 points behind trump uh and she said megan kelly said flat out um that nikki haley is beating you in south carolina and you know talk about all these polls and stuff i mean i don't if there's one thing that we could learn from observation over the last several election cycles is that polls suck and that they do not actually reflect very well what may happen on an election day. So, you know, this, this kind of obsession over over Trump supposedly up by 50, 50, 70 points in some of these uh, caucus and primary states. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Um, the good news is that in 40 days, we can actually start talking about what the voters in the Republican Party uh, and any saboteurs who can go into an open primary will actually do. And we'll see where um, I guess the Republican Party and people on the right want to do come uh, find a way to beat, um, you know, in their minds, they got to get rid of Joe Biden. So I'm just looking forward to actual things happening and not just a bunch of BS. Chris, do you think do you think it's just set in stone, the the kind of the results of this? Or do you think there's going to be the equivalent of an October surprise before these primaries get going? I think barring something extraordinary that Trump is going to win the nomination, and uh, it looks like Biden will be the candidate. Um, I mean, in politics, you never know what's going to happen. You know, there's still a, almost a year away until the, uh, you know, until the voters get to make their decision. But yeah, as of right now, it looks like it's going to be Trump v. Biden. Looks like it's going to be, you know, a, a rematch. Mm -hmm. Linnea, I mean, if I'm going by what just the media says, uh, just based on your gender, you must be supporting Nikki Haley, right? 
Oh, you know what? I I pretty much don't like anyone on that stage, but I think Nikki Haley is dead last. <laughs> and I I live in South Carolina now. Um, I think I would I would pick Christy over her honestly at this point. She's put her foot in her mouth so many times. Every time she goes on a podcast or something and she plays that girl power card, I want to throw up. Um, <laughs> it's maybe the worst thing on the planet. Uh, and and Vivek is 110% correct when he says, you know, well, of course, you're not too worried about all of this because, you know, you'll have a position on the board of Lockheed Martin. I think that's pretty much where we're at with Nikki Haley. Um, and it, it's reflected, it seems, in a lot of the stuff that she prioritizes and when she talks about, um, you know, national security and stuff. Um, and, well, to, and I also want go ahead. Well, I was going to say, to be fair, uh, Chris Christie also puts his foot in his mouth. But once he. But that's usually when he mistakes it for like a hot dog or something. <laughs> yeah. oh. uh, and I want to concur with Jim that um, I've gotten to the point where I don't trust the polls, but it's more than that. I'm I'm toying with the theory that, you know, the polls aren't so much about reflecting what people think as they are about trying to make people act in a certain way. So when you say, you know, oh, Trump is miles and miles ahead of everyone, uh, it here's my tinfoil hat moment. Uh, it might be encouraging complacency with people who are, you know, other, would otherwise be a little bit more um, active in promoting Trump's campaign. Uh, so that's my tinfoil hat about the polls. Mm -hmm. I don't trust them. I think that they are used to direct people's voting habits, not so much uh, to reveal their voting habits. Hey, Donnie, oh, wow. back, back to the debate for one second. Uh, you know, I've been watching debates for, you know, 20 years now. And I think Jim can attest to this too. They've become so much less about substance and so much less about real good policy debate and discussion and so much more about them trying to get their, their one-liners in and uh, just ad hominem attacks. So it's, I, I'm actually quite disappointed in uh, the state of the debates because it's, it's all about, you know, uh, trying to get high ratings and it's not about actually trying to inform the people about what these potential leaders would do in office. And mm -hmm. that to me is very, you know, very sad. Yeah. Not, not a ton of policy stuff specifically, although Vivek Ramaswamy did show one equation. I think it said Nikki equals corrupt. So I don't know <laughs> if that's, you know, it just goes through his math brain, but. Uh... Well, if you, if you like debates, you, sh you need to get him in now because I think the chances of a Republican nominee versus Biden debate is about zero. I don't mm -hmm. see him going on a debate stage ever. That's that, that's, I think, yeah, that's quite interesting to, to think yesterday, about. Yesterday, there was rumors going around that Tucker Carlson was being considered as uh, Donald Trump's running mate. And, you know, just like all the, the whatever, what ifs, whatever it could be, um, you know, I just kind of brushed it off as just rumor stuff. But then somebody brought up the idea of like, if that were the case, that would mean that we might see a Kamala Harris versus Tucker Carlson vice presidential debate. And I was like, I am here for that. <laughs> that would be the best thing to happen. But, uh, you know, whatever. A guy can dream. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got a lot of COP28 topics to cover, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, very interesting stuff, too. This is, I don't think we would ever spend two episodes covering COP28 stuff, but there was just so much that uh, I had notes about and, and me and Chris were talking about. We're like, yeah, let's do another episode on this. And at the end of the episode, I do have a Davos Watch segment where we're going to be talking about good old Klaus Schwab, Santa Claus, if somebody 
somebody said earlier. So let's get into it right away. Uh, let's see. So COP28 is in its second week. Like I said, shaping up to be a very interesting conference. I always complain about the coverage of the COP conferences because it always feels so superficial. I mean, you could set your clocks uh, on the fact that some conservatives are going to tweet pointing out the hypocrisy of all these elites flying in on their private jets to take part in a conference. I would love to see you restricted from flying. I get it. It's hypocritical. I understand. But it's it feels like it's the same old story. I've heard that joke 10 years in a row. I know it's not a joke, but whatever. I get it. But, I mean, can they at least carpool? One of the first articles that I have in the show notes uh, talks about how Kamala Harris and John Kerry took separate private jets. They couldn't carpool? Seriously? I mean, this is pretty egregious, is it not, Jim? Even for globalist political elite standards this is egregious <laughs> carpool come on man what do you think I mean, yeah i mean i mean what's the point of having john Kerry as a uh unfireable de facto member of the administration if he can't hitch a ride with kamala harris uh on air force two to go over there apparently john Kerry is so rich that air force two is beneath him that would be that's like going coach or taking the greyhound bus out there or something i don't know but yeah i mean the the this this cop i think like uh, I've mentioned on the podcast before, I've been to one of these. And in fact, our president, James Taylor, the Heartland Institute is over there right now. He'll be coming back in a couple of days um, with lots of stories. <laughs> and he's out there trying to bring climate realism uh, to at least around COP. Um, if he gets anywhere close to any of the delegates, they'd probably shoot him on site. Uh, <laughs> he's on a persona non grata list for sure. But there are thousands of private planes that are going in there. Um there's one of the stories we have in our show notes, people complaining that there are, I think, 2,500 fossil fuel company lobbyists that are there. Um, you know, this this whole thing is just, it, in fact, is probably in one event, this, this one single event to purportedly save the planet undoubtedly has the largest carbon footprint of any single event anywhere on Earth. And maybe because this is a bigger cop than the other ones, maybe in all of human history, never have so many people um, burned, uh, put, emitted so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere into, to, um, quote unquote, save the planet. Uh, and if you listen, I've been spending a lot of time reading about what's happening at, at, uh, COP 28. Um, I've been looking at a, a kind of editing a video. I might do a full video on, we're going to have clips of it here in this podcast, um, about how these people talk to each other. They are all certifiably insane. They live in a complete fantasy world. So, um, you know, putting putting aside the fact that John Kerry and uh, maybe John, if they really, gosh, we all have to do our part, right? But John Kerry can't hitch a ride on Air Force Two. I mean, th the whole thing is absurd. But the more you get into what's actually being said, um, if you actually listen to some of the things people actually say, like we have video clips of it, it's remarkable how disconnected from reality so many oh. of these people are. Oh, yeah, we're going to definitely get into that. But the, this first article, not only pointing out the uh, you can't hitch a ride with Kamala Harris. I actually think that uh, catching a ride with Kamala Harris is like a punishment in the Biden <laughs> administration. So if you're in the doghouse, you have to ride with Kamala Harris to, to global events like that. But uh, the rest of the article is kind of pointing out other aspects of the hypocrisy. Uh, you know, the main objective of this conference is to plan the phase out of fossil fuels. And it's taking place in the OPEC 
member petrol state, the United Arab Emirates. We talked about this in the last episode. 26% of the UAE's GDP comes from the country's oil and gas sector. It's just like, it just seems like such an odd location to have your conference. But uh, not only that, but according to the Huffington Post article, which I think Andy was showing on screen, like Jim mentioned, the conference hosted a record number of fossil fuel lobbyists. According to the report, nearly 2,500 fossil fuel lobbyists, quote, a record number that's nearly four times the industry's presence at the last year's negotiations. Not only is the conference swarming with fossil fuel lobbyists, but these environmental groups are also very upset that uh, Sultan Al-Jabbar of the United Arab Emirates was made president of the conference. And says here, before the event got underway, this is reading from the Huffington Post article, the Center for Climate Reporting and the BBC reported on leaked documents that allegedly detail Al-Jabbar's plans to leverage his role as head of the summit to secure oil and gas deals with other countries. He has, of course, denied this. But, I mean, Linnea, what the hell is going on with this conference? I mean, I know that... Most of these COP meetings are just for show, but what what is going on here? Like, how can a climate conference struggle to even keep up the appearance of being a climate conference? I mean, is this conference like a bigger sham than we even think? What's going on? I mean, I don't know. You get all these world leaders in one place. What else are you going to do if you're a, you know, a nation's leader and also the CEO of major oil industry, right. the, the nationalized uh, oil industry there? So... I don't know why they would expect anything different. They these countries make their money. This, you know, Dubai would not exist without oil money. This stuff does not exist without the oil industry over there. So I the the fact that anyone is acting surprised and appalled by all of this is um I don't know, either they're naive on their part, which some of the true believers who are trying to say that we should that they should boycott the event and stuff, probably they're just naive and they really thought <laughs> that these conferences were achieving things other than being annoying and expensive. Um, they they might actually believe it, but uh, no one else actually believes it. They're just posturing because stuff is starting to make the news. And, um, you know, you see a video of uh, Al Jabbar clapping hands and hugging uh, Vladimir Putin, and uh, as he as they're meeting to talk oil, and uh, it's it's not unbelievable. I'd say it's unbelievable. It's really not. It's hey, totally predictable. Donnie, conspiracy theory alert. Ready? All right, I'm ready. So, so John Kerry went there and you know talked all about. And I'm sure we'll get into this later on about how we need to eliminate you know coal. We can't permit any new coal plants around the world. Gee, did it ever occur to anybody that the United Arab Emirates sells lots of oil and coal is one of the biggest competitors to oil? So they, it's in their, you know, benefit to have coal be removed from, you know, that uh, energy grid. Just no, no. Right. See, I, I think that it's uh, like that report or whatever, whoever they were reporting on, talking about how he was going to leverage his position as head of the the summit to secure oil and gas deals with other countries. That's got to be true, right? And then all of these uh, fossil fuel lobbyists that are going over there, like surely their intention is to get in on this plan. And that's all under the disguise that they're being environmentally conscious and, you know, climate change warriors by going to this by going to the summit. I guarantee. I'd love to hear from complete James. complete joke. 
<laughs> I'll love to hear from James when he gets back, but you know, the exhibition room where everyone, all the companies and stuff have their big booths, I guarantee that there are two particular companies who have gigantic, you know, $10,000 booths, Exxon and BP. I guarantee that right. Exxon has a massive booth dedicated to their offshore wind and BP probably has something similar or maybe for their, um, they also like to brag about their um, alternative jet fuel stuff, which I guess uh, there was a story about a couple of planes coming in on that stuff, but it's <laughs> it's just like blending ethanol into gasoline. It's nothing new. This isn't all that impressive. Yeah. Our so, plane flew in on 5% mix of... Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Job. We're the like greenest, you know privately owned 747 the engine is, the is totally screwed and we have to scrap the entire plane but <laughs> yeah. it made headlines. well i don't know and so so it's just funny to think uh it's funny to imagine the like granola in their pockets hippy dippy types that turn up to this thing walking in and seeing a huge exxon mobile label <laughs> in well, glowing uh, neon over their heads to be uh, honest yeah. I'm, I'm i'm so glad that the fossil fuel industry has a seat at the table i mean i am being completely serious because at least that's giving some sense of of, you know, of, uh, you know, a, a valid argument. And I, I would hope that they are uh, advocating for the continuation of, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuel use. I, I hope they are. I mean, obviously, I'm not, you know, privy to the meetings, but I'm, 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 I'm glad that this is not just a total echo chamber of, you know, green energy zealots trying to undo uh, fossil fuels. Well, well Chris, mean... it's still an echo chamber. The, the oil companies have completely ceded their position on this stuff by saying that co2 is a pollutant and now we're selling a product that is a major contributor of co2 do you think do you think that they're just saying that in public but behind the scenes and in private they they know better because I, I i strongly think that i think that they're just saying that because it's the th because you know it's it, it's the thing to say but i guarantee you that in closed door meetings that they are saying anyone with an with you know just an ounce of like you know common sense knows that if we were to ban fossil fuels just you know, wholesale eliminate them in the next couple of decades, life as we know it would grind to a screeching halt. They know that these people all know that, which is makes me wonder, you know, what is their, what is their real like long-term motivation? What is their end game here? Yeah. I don't uh, know. Go ahead. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to say that in terms of the oil companies, I would say it's to push out the smaller competitors um, all these methane regulations and stuff in the United States, who's always on board with those? The majors are always on board with more regulation. It's mm -hmm. the mom and pop companies that can't keep up with it. Look, uh, they know they know that we're not going to be able to give up oil, gas, um, and coal uh, anytime in the next, in, in any real significant way, in the next two to three to five decades. They know this. And so there's, as Linnea said, they're setting it up so that their businesses profit the most as we have to continue using these sources of energy. Or as Chris said, life comes to a screeching halt and frankly, billions of people die. So, um, you know, while, while these cops are kind of, you know, when you listen to them and you see their, their communiques and all this other garbage that comes out of it, um, it all seems quite silly. But the plans they have to control society are real. Yeah, uh, just an analogy for Linnea's point is, is like the car companies and the regulations where they have to sell X percent of electric vehicles. And and we know by some of the reports that we've talked about on this podcast that these car companies lose money on some of these EVs that they sell. 
but they are in favor of these regulations because they know they can stomach the loss on selling 10% of their vehicles or EVs, but any other smaller competitors can't do that. Like it's just, it's a kind of a regulatory capture for like the big dogs in the industry. I think it's probably the similar sort of thing going on with these uh, oil companies, but there's just a little bit of me that thinks of like a Greta, right? It's like a, a lot of these people, you know, John Kerry, Al Gore, Hillary Clinton. It's like you hear them like say all this climate rhetoric stuff and you just like really question whether or not they believe it. Like you just saying this for political points, sell another book or something like that. But like there's people like Greta who I think like I'll put in that category of true believers. Right. And like her history with these conferences where she uh, she went up and she like uh, the, the, the how dare you clip is when she was like chastising all of these people. Exactly. At these conferences by just being all uh, all talk and no action. And then uh, and then like the next time she's like outside blah, 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 of the conference blah. doing the blah, blah, blah <laughs> thing. You know, they wouldn't let her inside the door, but she spoke outside. And then, like, the next one, she's, again, outside, and she's doing that, like, stick your climate crisis up your, you know, whatever. And it's just, like, now she's not even allowed in the country that the cops are taking place in. So I just imagine she's reading this headline. She's she's watching this podcast where we're talking about just this ludicrous, like, hypocrisy that's going on. <laughs> no, she's watching. She's watching. Hey, Greta. She must be crying like that uh, the Native American guy when he turns around and sees the garbage in that one commercial from 50 years ago. She she knows this is a sham, just like we all know this is a sham. That's right. That's what I mean. But at least she's a true believer, right? I, like, you know, it must be harder for her to stomach it than anybody. That's just my, my, my takeaway on that. But uh, but we got we got some other we got some other dog faced pony soldier. We got some other clips that I want to show. So uh, Al Jabbar, right? He's the president of the conference. I guess that's a position that they give for for conferences like this. You're considered the president if you're the the kind of the top official in the hosting country. So he's a sultan from the United Arab Emirates. And uh, before the conference took place, Al Jabbar took part in an interview where he seemingly thrashed the climate alarmist narrative. So I think there's two clips. We could probably just run them back to back, Andy, if you have them both ready. Both of these are taken from the same interview. You can lead by example. And like I said from the beginning, I accepted to come to this uh, to this meeting to have a sober and a mature uh, conversation. Uh, we do not, I'm not in any way signing up to any discussion that is alarmist. I am here factual and I respect the science. And there is no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 is my North Star. And a phase down and a phase out of fossil fuel, in my view, is inevitable. It is essential, but we need to be real, serious, and pragmatic about it. All right, go ahead and play clip two. I am sorry, I respect you. And I do not accept any false accusations. I've been very clear about my position. This is wrong. And you're asking for a phase out of fossil fuel. Please help me. Show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuel that will allow, that will allow for socio, for sustainable socio-economic development. Unless you want to take the world back into caves. No. Show me. No. <laughs> I think we can. We have we, we have eight women, women will be part of that. Give me the solution. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, no science out there to support the phase out of fossil fuels to avoid the 1.5 degree Celsius warming and phasing out of fossil fuels uh, haphazardly would take us back into caves as society. But, but, but he backtracked on that statement the day that the next day. He backtracked. He backtracked. Yes. Yeah, back- all my notes. It's fine. Go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm just saying that 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 you know, <laughs> great for him for saying that you know at that point in time. But he completely backtracked on that. You know, shortly thereafter, once he got some pushback from the likes of Al Gore and uh, John Kerry, he came out and said that uh, phasing out uh, fossil fuels is essential. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, well, he sa- he says it's essential and it's inevitable. Inevitable is a is a absolutely undetermined amount of time inevitable could be a 500 years from now that's inevitable that we won't be driving uh a 2013 uh toyota corolla 500 years from now that's inevitable i mean come on that his walk back on this was was probably just to save a little bit of face um well here, you know, no, 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 going no. on because he said this how right. does it get stop, started? stop everybody stop everybody right. we're walking back i had all, all these right. notes nice and carefully laid out here but we're jumping ahead so walking it back a little bit he said this stuff or at least this came out i don't know when the actual interview took place but it came out on like saturday i believe that's when i shared it on slack and i was like can you believe this guy is saying this is crazy and it seemed like it was just shattering the narrative like the president of the 2023 cop summit saying this it was it was pretty unbelievable and not only did like those comments come out and grab a whole bunch of headlines but it started just triggering everybody on the left uh, Al Gore, apparently the most triggered by this, he came out with a statement. I think this was like an email to a to a reporter asking him about it. He said, from the moment this absurd masquerade began, it was only a matter of time before his preposterous disguise no longer concealed the reality of the most brazen conflict of interest in the history of climate negotiations, Whoa. which I just thought was so. But wait a second. So Al, Al Gore has the biggest conflict of interest because he sold his business to uh you know it's just it's just <laughs> that's, so fair. that's fair he also al gore also accused uh, al jabbar of mansplaining to the woman uh, host of that of that podcast which i just thought was absurd didn't I, whatever put that aside the huffington post article that i referenced earlier was also very much offended by this many other left-leaning outlets very angry about this and uh, and like I said, uh, this this was out on like Saturday, I think. By Monday, Al Jabbar took part in a press conference where he walked all of that back. He said that phasing out f- fossil fuels was inevitable and essential, which he did say in that that clip that we uh, that we played. But he also followed that up by claiming that his words were taken out of context and that we do need to hit net zero by 2050. And we do have to hit like a 43% reduction by the year 2030. So it definitely seems like he was walking most of it back. Most of it, I'll say. So uh, Jim, I'm going to go to you. All right. Changing his tune for optics reasons? Do you think his role in the global order was threatened? Or did they just give an old-fashioned rough them up in the back room before uh, <laughs> between the conference and then? Yeah, yeah, they kind of gave him the business in the back room a little bit. Uh, and so he... Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's... I think That's the big tell. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think it's just... At this point, it's mostly posturing. But he said two things that are true. Um, first of all, let me back up and just get the proper um, context and background and the source of this interview. So uh, I found this on the website, We Don't Have Time, an alarmist climate website. And this was a apparently a live streamed interview with uh, Sultan Al-Jabbar with an, app, um, with an outfit called She Changes Climate. 
Linnea, that's for you. Uh, you should be joining that organization, at least just to infiltrate it. Um, but the person he's talking to, uh, it was moderated by She Changes Climate. And it was it was basically a discussion between Al Jabbar, who was who who is, by the way, is a learned man. I believe he has a degree in, in uh, chemical engineering. He has an MBA and he has a PhD um, in business administration or some sort of business PhD. Um, you know, all, all, um, all of his degrees actually uh, earned in the United States. So unlike probably most presidents of cops, this guy actually knows a little bit about science and knows kind of what he's talking about. But I found so I found seven minute seven minutes of this interview. Um, and the person he's talking with is Mary Robinson. She's the former president of Ireland. Um, you can't get more in the higher levels of the muckety mucks of the global elite than Mary Robinson. Um, I believe she's held at least four positions in the United Nations, um, climate this, climate that, women's rights this, climate justice. Um, she runs an outfit called The Elders. This, this, this whole thing is just so silly. Um, but there's a group apparently called The Elders, like her, who um, are fighting for climate justice and things like that. Um, but it was remarkable to me, and, and I may, might do a full video on this at some point, um, taking out uh, lots of excerpts from the from the interview. And I, one of the reasons I grabbed it is because I saw somewhere that it was starting to disappear. So I wanted to make sure it didn't disappear because he said two things that are true. One, there is no evidence that um, carbon dioxide, basically ending carbon dioxide or ending fossil fuels is going to keep us from getting to 1.5 degrees Celsius, warmer than the pre-industrial age, which was a figure pulled out of the air and is completely meaningless. Um, and he's right about that. There is no evidence that that would happen. Um, and in fact, if you were to eliminate all fossil fuels tomorrow, that the only carbon dioxide emitted by humans comes out of our mouths. If that was to happen tomorrow, it would not stop the, the earth from warming because carbon dioxide by human activity is not the driving force in global warming. Um, and in um, second, he said he wanted, um, um, you know, that... The, <laughs> Actually, I forget the second point, but the, I think the, the, the real takeaway here was that the tone of his voice is remarkable. He is doing some serious global mansplaining right here. Um, when you listen to the whole interview, she tries to tries to interrupt him and he gets very upset, uh, you know, as, as you can do in a polite way, uh, basically tells her to zip it while he explains to their audience that we cannot get rid of fossil fuels tomorrow like you all want to do. That I believe he truly believes no matter what he said, to walk it back. That's not what the definition of mansplaining is, but we'll put it aside. We'll put it aside. Uh, my favorite part of that clip is right at the end when he was talking about how, uh, you know, like, show me the roadmap. Show me the roadmap where we can do this in an orderly fashion and and not, like, lead society back to caves. And right. then the, and then the what's her name? Mary Williams? Mary Robinson. Robinson. She's like, uh, oh, I think we can. It's like, oh, great, great. Let's gamble all of the economy and all of society on your thoughts and hopes and wishes. Like that, she that feels like, like they can. Current, yeah. Currently, currently, the world uh, energy consumption is made up of eighty-five percent uh, coal, oil, and natural gas. Uh, solar uh, uh, accounts for one point one percent, and wind for two point two percent. Obviously, you've got you know a couple other biofuels and uh, nuclear in there. But can you just think about that for a second? If we were to just in in one fell swoop get rid of eighty five percent of our economic of our uh, electric you know grid capacity, that means that life as we know it would just cease. It would cease. And and it's like these people have to know that. That's what. That's why it just it makes me wonder what is their like. What what is their end game in this? Do they want us to all die? Do they do they want us to go back to living a pre-industrial revolution lifestyle, which was you know short, nasty, and, and just brutish? Is that what they want? 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, we could probably spend an entire episode talking about their motivations and all of that. But uh, there's just it. it Lene, I mean, regardless if he walked it back, regardless if he has this kind of answer of like, oh, yeah, we do have to, you know, phase everything out inevitably. Like the fact that he even got close to that line of climate realism, I think is pretty notable. What are your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, he's absolutely right. Um, I did not listen to the entirety of the interview, so I don't know if he got into um, some details that I would fuss with or not. But um, from what you played, I don't really have any problems <laughs> with what he said. Uh, the idea that the only the idea that we're going to stop global warming if we were to stop using fossil fuels tomorrow is an idea that is not even upheld by some of the climate alarmist scientists that you run into. Um, I've seen time and again, people say, okay, well, if XYZ country stopped using fossil fuels, then, you know, is global warming going to stop? And they'll say, no, they're saying we're trying to prevent it from getting worse past that point. Now they, they've shifted the goalposts on it. So they know that it's not going to stop no matter what we do. They know, you know, they looked at that, uh, the carbon dioxide, the atmospheric carbon dioxide charts from, um, over COVID when we had a very significant drop off in emissions because no one was traveling and there was not even a detectable it's a, bleh, detectable by the eye, like naked eye blip in uh, the trend. So they know, <laughs> they know that it's not, and they'll admit it, you know, it, when another scientist starts pressing them on it and says, um, well, you know, that human beings are still making up kind of a, a small percentage of the CO2 that's even released um, into the atmosphere in total. Uh, they'll say, yeah, that's true. And then they'll say, and we know that, you know, warming and stuff is caused by other things other than CO2. And they're always just hedging constantly um, mm -hmm. in order to maintain the narrative, but not have to back up anything that's super easy to verify false. Yeah. The only time they ever get away with that is when they say that extreme weather is getting worse. But that's because in an individual human being's experience, they might believe that that's plausible. Um, and I, I just recently wrote a thing about this because um, the there there's that video of Don Lemon saying that uh, he knows for a fact that hurricanes are getting worse because when he lived in Florida, there were no hurricanes and now there are. Uh, and then you look at the um, U.S. hurricane record and you see that there was like an 11 year period where there were no landfalls in Florida <laughs> that just so happens to line up with around the time that Don Lemon was living there. <laughs> <laughs> and now there are. And he's saying that, you know, this is proof that hurricanes are getting worse. That's what people's experiences with this. So they can get away with lying about stuff like that because people experience weather different than what the historical record would show. But they can't get away with the idea that warming is going to stop. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just, you know. Yeah, it's just obviously false. It, it, it again, and this is the last time I'll say this. It just seems so bizarre that they would like choose the United Arab Emirates as the location of this. And, uh, you know, like, so then the comments by like Al Jabbar doesn't, doesn't seem like they, like they should have been expecting it. And maybe they were because it seems to like count. Well, now he kind of fell in line, 
but to to kind of counter his uh kind of in the middle waffling when it came to this i guess if you wanted to describe it that way it seems like everyone else is like doubling down and pushing the narrative even harder than they might otherwise uh the un secretary general or whatever is uh antonio gutierrez right i forget what his title is for the un but he was he was spouting some pretty heavy doomsday stuff uh well chris you didn't you you listen to to antonio speech and it was they just keep ratcheting up the rhetoric i mean did he did he go beyond the global boiling phase that we entered that he talked about like a handful of months ago yeah (laughs) i mean it's it's full of you know the 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 usual like alarmist uh you know uh estimates that that never come true but Mm -hmm. um donnie i think you know one thing that that uh should be mentioned here is China is by far the greatest emitter of uh, carbon dioxide, and they're not even at this conference. They're still building a coal power plant every single week, and the United Nations still considers them a, quote, developing nation. So that just goes to show you what a sh- complete and utter farce sham this entire thing is. If they were really, really serious, if they in their heart of hearts really felt we have to stop this, these uh, carbon dioxide emissions, they would be pointing the finger at China. Oh, for be sure. Pointing the finger at China completely, and they would actually be applauding the United States because we've actually, through technological innovations, uh, you know, leveled off our carbon dioxide emissions in recent years. Even though, like Jim, I don't think that carbon dioxide emissions should be, you know, uh, pointed at as such a, you know, doomsday device. But yeah, it's just, the- just because that they, they have n- like like no logic. There's no reason here. There's there there. It, it's it's just it's like. Every single, every single uh, one of these, because I've been watching these for the you know past ten years or so. What what I've noticed is the pattern. They just keep ratcheting up the rhetoric. They just keep saying we're, it, it, it's an existential crisis and it's going to happen sooner and sooner and sooner. We're all going to die unless you just do what we say, which really results in what giving them the utmost power. That's what sure. this is about. This is about power. It's about it's about putting as much power into as few hands as possible. Yeah, so Antonio Gutierrez really uh, laying on the, the the doomsday stuff. Hillary Clinton was out there claiming that climate change kills five hundred thousand people a year, and uh, you know an absolutely absurd claim that went completely unchallenged by anyone at the conference. Well, not, just, just, not just just climate just, change, Donnie. Warming, warming right. specifically, but not, but, okay. but not cold weather. Warming specifically, she said that sixty one thousand people died in the latest heat wave across Europe. But Donnie, here's here's one thing that she didn't mention. Unfortunately, in Europe, they don't have air conditioning near the degree that we do here in the United States. So if a 78, nine year old woman, you know, in, in, in Spain dies because, you know, she lives in a, in, a, in a home that doesn't have air conditioning, wouldn't that actually mean that we want more use of fossil fuels? Of course not, because see, it's not about actually solving the problem. And you all know this. It's not about actually solving the problem. It's about just, you know, taking advantage of a non-existing crisis to increase their power. I just, uh, you, you've got to keep stressing that. Andy, we're not playing the Hillary Clinton. I'm not going to subject my audience to having to listen to Hillary Clinton for an extra and then, second. And then she also did pull out of thin air. 500,000 people died. And I know. So of course, of course, she plays the gender card. Most of them being women and girls, <laughs> without 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 citing one iota of evidence. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, we laugh at that, but 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 this is what they're using as justification to well, to, try, to try to re rearrange the entire world and 
trying to uh, micromanage our lives. I feel like she could have. I, I feel like she could have said five million people, and nobody right? would yeah. would have blinked yeah. an yeah. eye. You but, know? But, but, but <laughs> see, see that that's the thing. Ten years from now, it will be five million. They got to kind of start at that, you know, at that, that low level, <laughs> right. so they can keep, you know, ratcheting up the rhetoric because that's what we're going to have. Five billion do. people die well, then, every and, month. Right. <laughs> and and Chris, regarding, I'm sorry, my dog is barking. Um, regarding your comments on air conditioning, I think that's part of the reason why India didn't show up to this conference either. I believe they did not show up because um beforehand there was some news circulating that india was told by the united nations that they should use less air conditioning to yes. stop global warming and yeah, india right. was like screw you yeah do you think <laughs> do you the know hotels, how hot it is here do you Are think you the hotels me? in dubai uh were exactly yeah. donnie you beat me to it as long as long as they shut off the air conditioning in dubai for the entirety of this conference yeah. Then, yeah. then let's see how people can function without air conditioning. But yeah, this is supposed to show how much they don't care about actually helping, you know, the, the, the people that that, you know, that need access to these fossil fuels, which which fossil fuels are, are, are a lifesaver. Life without fossil fuels would just be inconceivably miserable. Yeah, I think the most noteworthy and revealing quote of the kind of the ramping up of the rhetoric was from John Kerry. Uh, we have a clip of him talking about ending coal power, and it really shows this this quote that we have prepared of John Kerry really shows where his head is at. So let's go ahead and play John Kerry clip. Listening out of coal, there shouldn't be any more coal-fired power plants permitted anywhere in the world. That's how you can do something for health. And the reality is that we're not doing it. So, um, you know, the measure here is, is really uh, sounding the alarm bell. I find myself getting more and more militant because I do not understand how adults who are in position of responsibility can be avoiding responsibility for taking away those things that are killing people on a daily basis. And, and the reality is that um, the climate crisis and the health crisis are one and the same. Yeah, that, so is, getting, that, is, that is such a classic example of projection. Getting more and more militant. I mean, can you get any more blunt than that? If you hear anybody, anyone in your life, uh, talking about getting militant about something in a non-sarcastic way, you should be a little bit worried about that person's state of mind. And a high-level government official that literally meets with people that run the actual military and other actuaries of government force, you should be legitimately nervous. So when I hear John Kerry talking about how he's getting militant about climate change stuff, it's like, oh, getting a little, getting a little nervous about that. Uh, Jim, am I overreacting? What do you think? The, the only way to get more militant over climate change is to use actual guns. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I was actually, I, um, I was asking somebody this the other day, actually, well, asking, I guess, on a, on a group chat with other uh, climate realists. And I, I just wondered that, you know, especially with the cop going on, the, the rhetoric from these people is getting more and more extreme mm -hmm. uh, all the time. The lies are getting so much more blatant <laughs> and obvious and so easy to debunk, like the, uh, the so-called heat, People, more people die from heat than cold stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's been well known for decades that cold is more dangerous and more people die from extreme cold weather than extreme hot weather. Um, you know, it's so I, I wonder, is the rhetoric really ex escalating because um, they're winning or because they know they're going to lose? 
this scene, I really, really hope that this, that we we keep seeing and hearing this extremist rhetoric. Al Jaber is the most reasonable person ever to be at a cop, let alone be president of the cop, because he he has he has a scientific background and he has a mind that is grounded in reality. He is not part of the climate cult. Now, is this rhetoric ramping up because does is, when the rhetoric is ramping up like this, does that sound like somebody who knows they're going to win or that they're winning, that they're ahead in this game? It's desperation. Or does it sound like somebody who's so desperate because the people aren't buying it and that they realize this is not going to be able to work. None of this stuff is sustainable. And so they just get more militant and more crazy. I sure hope it is the latter and not the former. You know, you know another thing that I noticed at this particular conference, Jim, and I think that you probably noticed this as well, they are not actually debating the issue itself. All they're doing is engaging in endless ad hominem attacks. And, and like you said, like just in, incredible fear mongering. So they're not even they're not even actually talking about the issue at hand here. They never do. All they do is they they try to villainize, you know, anyone who opposes them and they try to say if if you don't do what we say then we're, then you know the, the earth's going to end. It's like that is such a weak argument. That just goes to show how weak their, you know, th their uh, stance is. And like you said, the fact that they are just ratcheting up the rhetoric to like in, to incredible levels. Uh, shows that they're desperate. It shows that they know that this is not resonating with, you know, Joe Sixpack and, you know, just people around the world. You think people in Africa want to do this? Of course they don't. People in Australia, people in China, no, of course they don't. This only appeals to people like John Kerry who live in their crazy liberal bubble and this won't impact them. And they know that and they're going to become more powerful and more wealthy because of it. Yeah, Lene, what do you think about this more and more militant uh, comment by John Kerry? I mean, like the other another kind of faction that seems to be more and more militant, are like the climate protesters, you know, from the Just Stop Oil or Extinction Rebellion or all of these people. It's like, I mean, again, you mentioned tinfoil hat earlier. Like, is this yeah. kind of sending a signal to these type of uh, kind of the, the foot soldiers of this brigade to, you know, it's time to become more militant. What do you think? Well, I think just like with the uh, culture issues that we deal with in the, in the United States and Europe, um, I think this actually trickles down from the universities. Universities have always been a little edgy. Um, you know, the, the, the rhetoric that the students and the professors and nowadays especially the professors give out. And, and I don't think now that I think about it, I don't think it's particularly new either, but over time it permeates into um, academia because a lot of these students go on to write for uh, many magazines and newspapers and it, it, it permeates the uh, politicians minds because they read the newspapers. Right. So um, I noticed a while back, maybe last year, that there was a phrase that was starting to pop up in the blogs and and eventually into um, you know like Washington Post articles, they were starting to use the term unlivable, like uninhabitable. They were saying that the planet was going to become unlivable and that stopping fossil fuels is the only way to ensure a livable planet, um, which is so outside of the realm of what any climate scientists are actually talking about, even the alarmist ones, <laughs> that that it's kind of unbelievable that they're starting to use that terminology. But it trickles down into the media and then it trickles down into people like, you know, John Kerry. Um, he goes and he reads the newspaper or he gets from his advisors and they pass him off this Huffington Post article or whatever that says, you know, um, Little kids are having PTSD, 
because they're afraid because the planet is becoming unlivable. Well, (laughs) that's insane. I mean, just, yeah, it's, it's imagine if you live in the Philippines. Okay. And it's a, and it's, so what if the Philippines was one, let's go all the way up to 2.0 degrees Celsius warmer every single year for the rest of your life. You'd still be able to live there. You wouldn't die. This, this entire thing is, is complete insanity. Right. And, but, but people who aren't scientifically minded or people who have not been trained to um, have a mind that is geared towards scientific method and rather are geared towards the, what I call um, like computer model brain, where you're told what the inputs are and you expect what the outputs are and they match and you're not surprised <laughs> and, and you're not curious about why that is. You don't wonder if whether or not your inputs are correct or not. You're just willing to go along with whatever your professors tell you to do. And a lot of scientists my age are being trained that way now, um, which is pretty incredible and very harrowing. Um, we, we saw this during COVID. They, they, they come to a conclusion and then they will do anything to make sure that that conclusion, you know, remains in place, even if the evidence, you know, is completely yep. opposite their conclusion. And just yeah. real, real quick, one other thing that I noticed, Donnie, especially in Antonio Guterres's speech, the uh, theme of social justice is becoming much more prevalent. They, they are now also trying to couch this all as this is all about social justice. And Gutierrez said this transition is going to be in a social like in a social justice uh, type of way or we won't do the transition at all. So, you know, we, we saw that the United States, you know, uh, pledged a couple billion dollars to these, you know, green funds, basically climate reparations, taking money from wealthy uh, you know, countries and uh, giving it to poorer countries. That's, I think, like, like a new uh, side of this that they are really playing up because I think that that kind of brings some of their uh, disparate, uh, you know, parties together because that, that brings in the people who actually you would think would be opposed to this. Because it, what they're saying is, we'll just buy you off. We'll just give you stuff. So I think that, that like that, that's another angle that I think we need to pay particularly close attention to. Because the social justice aspect of this is another way for them to frame this as this is progressive. This is you know like moving in 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 the right direction. And this is about oppression. This is about those oppressive countries that use fossil fuels. And it, it it harms everyone else. No, actually, actually, we want them to use fossil fuels too. We want us we, we we want them to to have the infrastructure that so that they can be thriving nations. Right. Instead yeah, of just giving instead of just giving a couple of billion dollars to a corrupt dictator who's going to use it to you know pad his uh, personal bank account. Well, yes, exactly. And there's two comments that I want to make to that. One, you talked about taking money from rich countries and giving it to to poor countries. I think a, a better way of phrasing that is taking money from poor people in rich countries countries and giving it to rich people in poor countries so that's, that is that that's, is that's that is, what is. That is uh, you should you should copyright that uh, no yeah. i heard it from somebody i'm not saying oh, 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 for well, that. good yeah. for you for actually you know <laughs> yeah very good and that, then that's, uh, what climate, that's what climate justice is it's a redistribution scam it's nothing else than, other than that right and and we've it, said this on the show before though it's it's not that climate is adopting these you know kind of european and american um, social justice concepts. It's that the end goals of the climate change thing are exactly the same as the end goals of the COVID stuff are exactly the same as the you know. end goals of any socialist push, any communist push. It's not about the thing that they're saving the planet from. It's about the the results that they want, which exactly. is controlling yeah. everything that you do ever, having control over your money so that they can claim that they're making it equitable all of that, the ends are 
what it's all about. It has oh, absolutely yeah. nothing to do with the average temperature of the planet. Come on. <laughs> no, yeah, no doubt. And we did a poll uh, with COVID. And I, I've said for a million, million times in this podcast that like uh, what happened in the aftermath or during COVID was like a roadmap for what they want to do with climate change. And we did a poll during COVID where we asked people kind of like, uh, I forget exactly some of the questions. It was just exploring like the authoritarian tendencies for people like as it surrounds COVID. I remember one of the questions is like, what should happen to parents that don't want to give their kids the vaccine? And like the, the, the answers went all the way up to like, they should have their kids taken away from them. And like some like preposterous amount of people said yes to that. And I wonder if that's also reflected like that authoritarian streak is also reflected in climate change. Like I know there's plenty of polls that that show that like, you know, people don't want to pay an extra $5 in taxes if it means undoing climate change. But I wonder if they have the same sort of uh, kind of not wanting to do anything when it comes to like punishing oil companies or, or throwing climate deniers in jail. Like I'm, I'm very curious if, if, if it's super low like the $5 thing, or it's much higher? Oh, I guarantee it. I absolutely guarantee that if you did a national or international poll and you said what kind of penalties should be given to, and if they say oil companies or if they say polluters, <laughs> they'll say polluters because they want people to think that carbon dioxide is like dumping mercury in a river right. when it's obviously not, but they'll call it pollution or they'll call it whatever. And if someone dumps mercury in a river on purpose, then they probably should go to jail or something. But, <laughs> they should, they do. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but they'll say what should happen to oil companies that are knowingly leading to uh, the use of fossil fuels so that it's polluting the atmosphere or whatever. And I guarantee that a, a harrowing number of people will say that they should be put in jail. Mm. Um, and I, and I, Bet o that over that number... under 25%. Uh, yeah, I think Jim says I think, over. I think it, it'll depend we should do on this region. Poll. I think in Europe, I think in Europe it'll be pretty high. Um, yeah. but I think in the United States it'll be less high, but still okay. higher than you would think. Right. Um, no, yeah, I guarantee, I... especially if if the poll seems to, as long as the poll is worded carefully enough to not make a person reflect and think could I fall into that category? Because, <laughs> right. because if you drive a, a gas car or something, you might fall into that category once that, you know, regulatory creep starts, starts edging in, which is always the goal, of course, but it's, yeah, I'll no, be, yeah. I, I think a lot I'll, of people be, are authoritarian like that. See, now I'll, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate and be slightly optimistic because in my personal orbit, friends and family, I've noticed in the past year or so a shift in their attitudes towards the whole global warming climate change thing. And I think they're starting to become much more skeptical because I have I have conversations about them about this stuff and uh, stuff like, you know, where I'll ask them, you know, what do they think about electric cars? And they'll say, well, it makes no sense because they are, you know, tearing apart the land to get those minerals and those, you know, parts that are necessary for that. And I'm like, wow, like, yeah, they, like that. I think that the sun is starting to shine through slowly but surely and that the, the American people in general are starting to become a little more aware of the actual agenda. And it's not about saving the planet. That is a complete and utter ruse that they are right. using to to implement their actual goal of more power. Yeah, and maybe that is uh, the reason for the perceived desperation that we see that's causing this like increase of the rhetoric. If like they see that they're losing, 
then they just get like even more hysterical that we're all gonna I, die. I, you I know, strongly believe that it's, I, that, that could it, be it's, like, it's like a boxer, you know, with their with their back against the ropes. What do they do? You start just swinging, you know, uh, out of control, and just you start desperate, you know, desperate moves. Jim, final thoughts on this? If you got nothing, we're going to Davos watch. Davos watch. Let's go. Right, let's do it. Hit that bumper music. All right, welcome to episode nine of Davos Watch, where we keep an eye on the global elites from Davos to the UN and all the other advocates of global fascism and totalitarian technocracy. This week, I wanted to highlight Klaus Schwab. I think uh, for the next couple of episodes, I'm going to do very kind of uh, like the 101s of these uh, Davos type organizations and groups. So why not start with Klaus Schwab, founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum? Klaus Schwab is the face of the World Economic Forum, and for many, including me, is the face of the globalist agenda, as illustrated by my use of him in the logo for Davos Watch. Despite the fact that Klaus Schwab has been in his role for 50-plus years, he's 85 years old, and I think for an 85-year-old, he actually looks pretty good, 50-plus years as the head of the World Economic Forum. Despite the fact that he has been uh, developing relationships with an incredible amount of world leaders, business leaders, heads of state, you name it. Despite the fact that he is enormously influential person on the world stage, he is still not a household name. So I wanted to dedicate this episode of Davos Watch to taking a good look at Davos man himself, Klaus Schwab. Based on my research, Klaus Schwab is a world-class influence peddler and a man that would do business with the devil himself if it would further his agenda by only an inch. And I have some articles and video clips to back up all those claims. So the first article that I want to talk about is actually a Vanity Fair piece that came out. Uh, it's probably a year old, this piece, but there's a lot of great stuff in here that kind of paints a pretty clear image of who this man really is. So first off, the article talks about Davos, the most recognizable events hosted by the World Economic Forum. It's uh, uh, located in the posh ski resort summit. It's, uh, it's an excuse to rub elbows with Bono and Bill Gates and other celebrities and cultural elites, all while enriching himself on membership fees and partnership contributions. The World Economic Forum is funded by Schwab's ability to convince multinational corporations to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for the privilege of simply being labeled a strategic partner. So he's got that salesman quality to him, right? Describes uh, The article describes the World Economic Forum headquarters. It says, quote, a glass-fronted campus looking out on Lake Geneva, a hallway connecting two wings, is lined with photos of Schwab posing with world leaders. The article describes Klaus Schwab's uh, wealth, his homes, his cars, his globetrotting expenses, etc. And it also dives into who Klaus Schwab is as a person. One of the most interesting stories that's in this Variety Fair piece uh, describes a time when a World Economic Forum employee running late for work and aware that Schwab was overseas dared to park in the boss's parking spot. 
Schwab, uh, in tune with the strife of the working people, was compassionate and told his employee that they could use his spot whenever he's not around. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Schwab insisted that she be fired, relenting only after senior staff intervened to save her job. How dare she try to park in his parking spot when he was out in Dubai or something like that? So the article boils down to the idea that Klaus Schwab is an influence peddler and a successful one at that. But let's not just write off this person as just simply a grifter. That would be doing Klaus Schwab an absolute disservice in terms of his impact and global power uh, at, uh, you know, at a global level, at international levels. As he uh, as has been made painfully clear to me ever since we began doing work on the Great Reset and ESG, the World Economic Forum has wielded massive power and influence in ushering in so-called stakeholder capitalism, ESG, and pushes in industries from agriculture and energy to finance and insurance to decarbonize and push towards net zero. So how does one achieve this? Yes, Davos Conference are great places to rub elbows with the movers and shakers of the world. And it's also a great place for meetings to be had and agreements to be struck. But one of Klaus Schwab's favorite programs of the World Economic Forum is the Young Global Leaders Program. Reading from the World Economic Forum website, quote, the Forum of Young Global Leaders is a community with the vision, courage, and influence to drive positive change. During a transformational three-year experience, young global leaders are inspired to be bold in undertaking a sense of shared responsibility, impact, and ambition. And I think next week, uh, I'm going to dedicate Davos Watch to this idea of the Young Global Leaders Program. Uh, there's It's very interesting, and there's a ton of noteworthy people that are a part of this Young Global Leaders Program. But for the sake of this episode, just know that the program is designed to groom the next generation of global leaders to conform to the agenda of the World Economic Forum. So we have a clip. The first clip that I want to show is Klaus Schwab bragging about the influence of the Young Global Leaders Program in international affairs. So let's go ahead and play clip one of Klaus Schwab. Actually, this um, notion to integrate young leaders is part of the World Economic Forum since many years. And I have to say, um, when I mention our names like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. But um, what we are very proud of now is a young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, Brazil, of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a, rece at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I would know that half of this cabinet or even more half of uh, half of this cabinet are for our actually young global leaders of the world and that's true in argentina too wow yeah sorry that's true in argentina as well it's true in argentina and uh, it's true in france now mm -hmm. i mean with the president with a young global leader but what is important for me is those young global leaders have an opportunity to come here and we, in addition to the young global leaders, we have now the global shapers in 450 cities around the world. 
Yeah, so it's a very, very interesting clip there. There's a lot to unpack. He's talking about uh, uh, Merkel and Putin as being former young global leaders. The Putin one apparently is a little subject to uh, not sure if that's true. I mean, clearly he says that in the video, but I've done some research on it and it's very inconclusive of whether or not that's actually the case. I don't know if he meant that people in the Putin administration come from the young global leaders, but I mean, he clearly says right there that Putin was a former member of the young global leaders. But uh, but yes, he, so he talks about how the World Economic Forum through this Young Global Leaders Program is able to penetrate administrations of countries around the world. Justin Trudeau in Canada and more than half of his cabinet are alums of the Young Global Leaders Program. Uh, they bring up Argentina in there as well. But doesn't that context make everything that's happened in Canada over the past several years, especially during COVID, make all the more sense? It just seems to fit a little bit better knowing that they're getting all of their kind of uh, their their beliefs and worldviews from the World Economic Forum. So this is an incredibly in, uh, influential, uh, influential infrastructure that Schwab and the World Economic Forum has built. And again, still your average person doesn't know who he is. So let's take another look at uh, just kind of the, the the business angle of good old Klaus Schwab. So not only can we point to the authoritarian and dystopian policies that stem from the World Economic Forum, whether it be ESG, the Great Reset, or anything like that, but we could also look at the way that he talks about straight-up dictatorships like China. So we have another clip of Klaus Schwab talking about the China model of governance with a state-owned media network in China. Let's go ahead and play clip two. Subays has been formed, but um, we have to go one step further. We have to have a strategic mood. We have to construct the world of tomorrow. It's a systemic transformation of the world. So we have to define how the world should look like, which we want to come out of this transformation period. I uh, respect uh, China's achievements, which are tremendous over the last uh, over 40 years. I think it's um, a role model for many countries, but I think also uh, we should leave it to each country uh, to make its own decision what system it wants to adapt. And I think we should be very careful in imposing systems. But the Chinese model is certainly a very attractive model for uh, quite right. a number of countries. Yeah, such an attractive model that the uh, the World Economic Forum's got for controlling their country. It doesn't seem like the words of someone that has a foundational belief in freedom and limited government. And just recently in November, Klaus Schwab was at a conference in Beijing where he met with several leaders of SOEs in China. And SOE is a state-owned enterprise, so owned by the Chinese government. Schwab praised the SOEs and expressed gratitude for the SOEs' participation with the World Economic Forum, saying that the World Economic Forum is willing to further strengthen strengthen cooperation with China and these state-owned enterprises. So forget uh, an adherence to Western democratic standards or freedom in general. If the Communist Chinese Party wants to do business, count Klaus Schwab in. And the last thing that I want to point out uh, that kind of paints a pretty good picture of Klaus Schwab comes from that same clip 
where Klaus Schwab at the very beginning of it says that we have to construct the world of tomorrow. We have to define how the world should uh, should look like and, you know, and transform it into that into that image or whatever he said. And uh, I could find you a dozen quotes of, of Klaus Schwab talking about designing the future. And now uh, he would suggest that when he talks about we have to design the future, surely he's talking about stakeholders. But when was the last time you or I were invited to Davos? That's not the case. This is his vision. This is his little posse of people that are trying to design what the future looks like and and construct things like ESG to make sure that we can push society in the, the direction of that vision. The reality is Schwab sees himself as a grand organizer of society. A vision must be determined, and through the use of his influence and infrastructure he has erected, we can structure society so that it meets that vision. That's what the Great Reset is. That's what the Great Narrative is. And that is the worldview of Klaus Schwab. So, Jim, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, thoughts on Klaus Schwab, the young global leaders, or anything else that I had to say during my monologue? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Schwab is so, you know, visibly excited that so many of his quote unquote young global leaders have, quote, penetrated the cabinets and, and have been elected prime minister of countries like Canada and Germany. Uh, and, and it's because he knows, and he has a smile on his face because of this, he knows. That is because those people, um, those leaders of those countries and the people in those cabinets are not going to be serving the will of the people, their constituencies, their voters. Um, they'll be serving and carrying out um, his will, his agenda. Um, and that agenda, of course, is a socialist freedom killing agenda um, that that has been cooked up over decades at the World Economic Forum. It's the same reason why he seemed to have a tone of glee when the pandemic hit because it was this golden opportunity that they could not pass up to start putting into place by fiat the kinds of command and control and freedom-killing policies that they had only dreamed about. Uh, dreamed about. He probably thought he would die before the um, perfect world that he had in mind would start to come to fruition. But there you go. With the pandemic, they, he was able to see how well it worked in real time. And to the disappointment of everybody who loves freedom, um, I was very disappointed to see so many people just lay down and take it. And so what, what I like about those clips and about the Davos Watch segment, Donnie, is that it proves that this is not some conspiracy theory. This is fact. Um, he lays his agenda out plainly and he does it repeatedly. Um, he says that the world of tomorrow will be built. Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and then he's always careful. Well, we don't want to impose systems on the nations that need to do this. So of course, uh, he's already imposing his systems on the freedom, um, on, on the free West, what used to be considered the Western world, the free West. He was, of course, talking about China. We wouldn't try to impose um, any kind of free market capitalism on China. You, your command and control system, your, your oppression of, uh, of inconvenient people with inconvenient thoughts, that, that's the model we actually like. We like that one, and we're trying to spread it around to the Western world. Um, Do you know who else so said something just like that, by the way? Sorry. Someone that you know who else said that like basically that exact same thing about uh, praising China's model of governance or whatever. Yeah. Justin Trudeau. He said oh. that during COVID. He like said that like, oh, I wish I had like some of that power, or whatever. It's like clearly you're an acolyte of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And just I'll just wrap up by saying you know. And so you mentioned that the Great Reset. You know. Uh, you know. One of its foundations is replacing free market capitalism with with quote unquote stakeholder stakeholder capitalism. 
Um, and so that's a, that's an economic model that, of course, is untried unless you want to count um, all the communist countries in the world that have slaughtered millions and uh, have, have um, you know, relegated the survivors of their tyrannical regimes into lives of misery and uh, and poverty. But um, so so this is this is what he wants to do. And guess who gets, as you mentioned, Donnie? Guess who isn't a stakeholder? You, me, Linnea, the people, the listeners to this podcast. You're not a stakeholder. I, it's very bad news for you there. So um, yeah, it's it's important that this keeps being hammered, be or else we're all going to get hammered by uh, a, a freedom killing uh, socialist globalist agenda. Jim, you didn't mention me, so am I? Yeah, you're in. You're in the club. Am I, am I part of the club? <laughs> Report yeah. to Dubai right now. Get to your well, yeah. I knew well, you were a spy, Chris. I'm That's a, why I was I'm just letting everyone know. Um, Donnie, just real quick. Uh, when I was teaching uh, American government in South Carolina, one of the uh, questions on the uh, year-end test was, "What is the most efficient form of government?" Uh, dictatorship. You know why? Because the dictatorship can just instantly, with it, with the snap of a finger, just say, "Okay, this is happening. Okay, that's happening." Klaus Schwab loves that. Democracy, republics, you know, federalism, all this stuff, checks and balances, you know, the systems that we have in place here and in, you know, some places in Europe and some other places around the world. It's messy. It means that you can't just do things quickly. But one of the other things that stood out to me was the audacity of him to say, I know the future and we, we will plan the future. No, you don't. Because in 1980, do you think anyone in their right minds would have said, the internet, this thing is just going to come up and it's going to revolutionize. Of course not. Trial and error, innovation, ingenuities, they, they, they're sparked organically. Mm -hmm. He cannot stand the fact that it happens organically outside of his control. He's a control freak. He wants to control. He wants to micromanage. He wants to just, you know, have the ability to tell people how to live their lives. Most, most of, I think, Americans still at this point in time reject that. And I hope that that mentality, you know, stays because if that mentality goes away, just like Ronald Reagan said, you know, we don't we don't pass freedom down in the bloodstream. It has to, you know, be be uh, like erected in every single generation. Mm. But one of the things that they're very, very good about is the education system. And like the young, uh, young leaders and all this stuff, they are trying to brainwash and indoctrinate. And I fear it's I am fearful because I saw it happening before my very eyes when I was teaching students, even in South Carolina, that they buy into all this stuff. They buy into it. And I hope that at some point in their lives, they will recognize the, you know, th that this is not the way to, to you know, move forward. But I'm just becoming a little less confident of that happening the more I see how much this is, you know, uh, being entrenched in younger generations, whether it's climate change or just or social justice or, or any of these things. They're mm -hmm. all intertwined. Right, right. Linnea, final words on any of this. Uh, if you have any comments on Klaus Schwab, World, e World Economic Forum, or just my, you know, Davos Watch segment in general, what do you think? It's a good segment. Um, other than the fact that Klaus Schwab is like actually a cartoon character. I saw someone in the comments say that he is literally Spectre. Yes. Right. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, pretty much. Um, it's uh, Ernest Blofeld. I think it's I think it's kind of fundamental to what Chris was saying. It's kind of fundamental to progressives in general to believe that there is a a charted out plot of history yeah. that is inevitable. And all of the things that they do are in aim, you know, are trying to reach towards that that utopia. Um, and anything that detracts from the utopia is some kind of aberration that needs to be cut down and forgotten about. So um, I think it's pretty much par for the course. And we should never be surprised that any of these people uh, act uh, like totalitarians when that's what they are. 
Barack Obama constantly used this phrase, and I'm sure Jim remembers it, the arc of history bends towards justice. That is a complete you know, falsehood. There is no arc of history. The, the, the arc of history is what we make of it. And right. if we That's follow, hindsight. right. And if we follow their model, it's not going to be towards justice. It's going to be towards tyranny. No doubt, no doubt. But that is going to do it. We're already 18 minutes long of this episode. I want to thank all of you for joining us for this episode of the In the Tank podcast. Join us every Thursday for a new episode. Uh, if you would like, you can help out the show if you're just listening on iTunes by leaving us a review. That'd be greatly appreciated. For those that are listening only, you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon Central Time, where we are live streaming this on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and Rumble and all of that. Join the conversation. Throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly, and you could help us out by not spending a penny, just spending a couple of seconds hitting that subscribe button if you haven't already, sharing this content, hitting that like button, or just leaving a comment under the video all helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Also, if you'd like, you can follow us on X at In the Tank Pod, or you can send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show by emailing us at In the Tank Podcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on X slash Twitter, at Heartland Inst on X slash Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Linnea Lucan, where can people go to see your latest work? You can look at Linnea Lucan on Twitter, um, also the um, climaterealism.com and energyataglance.com. Fantastic. And Chris Telgo, what do you have to pitch today? I'm going to be like Jim and say go to heartland.org because there's a lot of great opinion um, articles up. Linnea just wrote a fantastic article that every single person should read. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.